you have your Bibles, uh, if you're not going to do the, the QR code thing, go to Matthew 6, continuing our series on the revolutionary life that Jesus described and models for us. Here's the deal. He is a good leader. He describes things and he models them. He tells and he does. Let me save you untold heartache. Do not follow a leader, no matter how charismatic, no matter how uh, strong they are, whatever the case, do not follow a leader who only describes and doesn't model, who only talks about it and doesn't do the stuff. That principle alone will guard you from toxic leadership, okay? If you have a leader who describes and then actually doesn't do, back away from that as quickly as you can, myself included. If you see a gap between proclamation and execution, hit the brakes because that's dangerous stuff. And Jesus always taught and modeled what he's talking about. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, not taking it verse by verse, but just taking uh, specific passages in it. We're leaving a lot of meat on the table there that we'll come back at other times and revisit. But I'm focusing on a few things that stand in direct contrast to the prevailing winds of our culture that seem revolutionary or so unusual in this day and age. Have you ever made a comment or thought or said something that did not age well. Like, you said it, and then you, later you thought, I hope they forget I said it. Because over time it was revealed that that wasn't even close to true. Things change. Situations change. Because of that, sometimes strong, emphatic statements that we make seem intelligent in the moment, but leave us twisting in the wind over time. 1998. My friend shows me eBay, and I remember looking at him and saying, people are never going to buy anything from a stranger on the internet. Last year, 10, what is it? I wrote it down, $10 billion in sales in eBay. So I might have been wrong, okay? But I was in good company, because Paul Krugman, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist, the next year said, by 2005 or so, it'll become clear the Internet's impact on the economy will be no greater than a fax machine. Nobel Prize winning economist. But it's not just people who do things that don't age well. Years ago, Canada named their immigration department Immigration Settlement and Integration Services. Suddenly, nobody wanted to call the ISIS office. This might be my favorite, though, okay? There's this woman, Brianne who posted in October of 2013 on Facebook. So sick of Walmart employees having the worst attitude towards customers, it's not my fault Walmart's the only place that would hire you. A little harsh. Three years later, she posts, started a new job at Walmart. <laughs> okay, it is sometimes we say things and it doesn't age well. And we laugh, but we have some sympathy because we've all had to eat our words, and the longer the gap between the words spoken and the consideration of those words, the more likely that we were off a few degrees and things weren't exactly as we described or as we said. Those of you who are 30, do you want to be held to what you said at 15? Those of you that are 60, do you want to be held to what you said at 30? Those of you that are 120, this does not apply. Once you're at 60, I think you probably have said all the crazy stuff you're going to say. But you see what I'm saying. Over time, we all look back and go, wow, that did not age well very well. That's what makes 
the Sermon on the Mount, particularly this part, so impactful. Not only was it strong when Jesus said it, it's 2,000 years later, and it's like he's peeking through the windows of our heart, speaking to us. And the section we're going to look at today looks like it might have explicitly been written for our day and age. And let me start with what I'm going to call kind of our core verse. It's actually the one that Jesus ends with, but uh, he sums it up so well that I want to start with that. Imagine Jesus says this 2,000 years ago, knowing that we would sit in a dance studio that we need to get out of early in a little post-COVID startup church in an economy that is as rattled as we are on the first Sunday after tax day. With us in mind, he says, Matthew 6, 34, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Personalize it, Monday. Do not be anxious about Monday. For tomorrow, or Monday, will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. When you read this, do not be anxious for tomorrow, do you feel seen? Do you feel understood? Can you imagine another time in your life where you needed to hear this more than you do now? So today we're going to talk about the revolutionary life. This is part six. My notes said part five. That didn't add up right. Part six, we're going to call it the high cost of worry and encouraging you not to pay it. Worry is costly. We're going to talk about what it costs. Now, the whole chapter is really potent up to this point. Some of you are looking at six going, you skipped a lot of stuff. I really did. He talks about how to give to the needy in a way that doesn't draw attention to you. He teaches the Lord's Prayer. He tells them when you fast, don't be so melodramatic and make it all about yourself. But then near the end, I could preach any of those ideas for a long time, but I'm pulling out these last 15 verses because sometimes I need to preach to my own struggle. Okay? I don't struggle with every issue that I preach on. I don't believe you have to be struggling with something in order to, to teach God's word on it. There are things that a pastor needs to talk about that you hope he's not struggling with, right? However, this is not one of those things. When I read, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, I sit up straight and I listen. I'm reminded of the Nobel Prize winning lyricist Bob Dylan who wrote, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. That's not actually Bob Dylan, that's Taylor Swift. But I, I just couldn't bring myself to quote Taylor Swift. I just, I figured Bob Dylan was more on brand, and anybody who knew it was Taylor Swift wouldn't care, right? Okay, it's me. When I read this, some of you are still trying to figure out what just happened. When, when, when I read this, I go, no, this is me. This, do not be anxious for tomorrow. This is, okay, in full confession. I wrestle with this. I wrestle. What are we going to do when our van dies? It hasn't yet, but what? What if the economy crashes or house loses half its value? What if, what, what's life going to look like when I, when I get old? What, what if something happens to me and who takes care of my family? What, 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 what? It's just, it seems like a tidal wave. And then when something happens in the day that I'm living in, I don't have the energy to deal with it because I've borrowed so much trouble from the days to come. And I'm completely out of coping skills. It's called borrowing trouble from tomorrow and the interest rate is high. Now, here's the crazy part about me, probably not you, because you would never, ever do this, but when I'm worrying about things that might happen, I feel like I'm being responsible. You know? I feel like I've got a little indignation about that. Well, aren't you worrying about it? I am. It kind of makes me a better person. 
In reality, I'm just paralyzed by things that have not happened yet and might not ever. There is nothing responsible about being stressed or so full of anxiety that you're not present for people in the day. It's actually a weird sort of self-indulgence. James 4.14, he says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow may bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time, and then it vanishes. You cannot anticipate everything that might go wrong or might happen. And the thing that we think we're being responsible for in worrying oftentimes never happens, and you never get a minute of that back. You and I were not meant to be crippled by crisis or an inability to function because we are worried. In fact, anywhere it talks about fear in Scripture, it tells us not to. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, do not be anxious. Some versions say do not fear about anything. And then it tells us to take it to the Lord in prayer and the peace of God will be a marker on our lives. So there's a way through this fear that cripples us to the peace that he wants us to find so that we can obey Jesus, live healthy emotional lives, and not borrow trouble from things that maybe never ever happen. Remember, tomorrow we'll have trouble. You don't know what it is, but today's got trouble and you need to be able to focus. How many of you had something that happened to you in the last four years that you just did not anticipate and it was hard? I think it's fairly universal. Just... And, and no amount of worrying that you did up until that point paid off because it came out of nowhere. Now, I feel like I'm fairly intuitive and I feel like I can read a room and I know it, what can happen, but the hardest season in my life came from something I totally didn't even see coming. And all the worry that I had put into the previous years was completely useless because those things didn't happen and then something happened I just didn't anticipate. Because Jesus anticipated that kind of thing happening to us, he stood on a hillside, surrounded by a crowd, and spoke into that fear that you have. And in his summary, he told us not to do that, but in the verses up to it, he leads, he explains why we do it. Why we worry and borrow fear and borrow trouble from the future. A couple of things, and it's mostly to do with division. First of all, a divided portfolio. Now, there's a strategy in investing that says diversification. You put a little money here, a little money here, a little money here, a little money here. A little, so you're like, wait a minute, I only had one group of little money. So you split it, divide, whatever you have, you divide it out a little bit in hopes that if one sector goes big, you don't miss out on it. You might not make a million, but you'll make something. Or if one sector tanks, you won't lose everything. It's safe. Some people invest their lives like they invest their money. A little here, a little here, hoping it all pans out in the end, and they're willing to accept tiny little gains because they don't want any risk, but they never actually see any big gains either. Whatever you invest your life in is more important than about how you invest your money. And it's true because you can lose money and go get more. You can never go get more time. So to those of you who are dividing your portfolios and you're trying to keep these people happy and these people happy and doing a little bit for myself and give God a little bit over here, Jesus says this about where we put our treasure. And you've always thought about this as money, but in our culture, it's just as real about time. He says in Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart also be, heart be also. Where did you invest the bulk of your time this week? If we projected your calendar onto the screen, what could we learn and make assumptions? Maybe not totally fair assumptions, but what assumptions might we make about your priorities and your loyalties? The better your investment of time, the less you worry about tomorrow. Bad investments of time contribute to your anxiety and your worry because even if you never say it, you're waiting for tomorrow's trouble to come because of your bad investment of time today. Nobody spends four hours binging Netflix next to a big plastic tub of Costco cheese balls and gets up from the couch happy with how they spent their time. Nobody looks back and goes, you know, that, that, was, that was a good use. I mean, everybody's done it, but nobody feels good about it. Why? Because intrinsically we know that when we invest our time slowly, tomorrow is worse. Few of us waste all of our time on things that are not worthy. Nobody really does that. But we diversify our investments of time between that that's going to really last and that that is not. And one day we will wish that we had invested much more heavily in things that will last. I read a statistic this week that just stopped me in my tracks. Just made me like think a ton. We all look forward to a long full life with our children, enjoying them and, and, and being with them in adulthood, okay? It's, it's fun to have little ones, but it's fun to, and we want to spend time with them. However, 93 to 95% of the time that any parent spends with their child happens before they're 18. It's up to 95%. What does that mean? Then from 18 till you pass away, your child gets to be 40 or 50, it's only about 5 to 7% of the time that you're ever going to spend with them happens as an adult. What does that mean? It means those things that you hope to pour into your kids when they're adults, you probably won't be able to. You've got this really narrow window. I read somebody who was, who was writing about this statistic, and, and I know this guy. He's in his early 40s. He and his wife married early, had kids early. They're empty nesters now at like 42 or 43 years old. And he said, I would do almost anything to go back in time and have another two weeks of ordinary, everyday, boring, exhausting time with my kids. I would do almost anything to do that. Because he recognizes that that was the best investment of his time. Resist the temptation to diversify your investments of time so thin that you don't get any real return from anything. Ephesians 5.16 tells us make the best use of time because the days are evil. And if Satan can't get you to just blatantly sin, he will get you to stall and he will get you to waste time. Because when you do, not only is you lose time, you could have invested in something good, it increases your anxiety for tomorrow as you get up from the couch with that half-eaten box of cheese balls and go, I did it again. I'm four hours gone. 
and I haven't invested in anything that matters. So he talks about divided loyalty, I'm sorry, divided uh, investment. But he also talks about the idea of divided vision. Okay? Midway through his manifesto here, Jesus throws a couple of sentences out that if you read it quickly, you might go, how does this fit in here? But they're really not out of place. Matthew 6, 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then the light in you is darkness. And how great is that darkness? You're like, what? What is he talking about here? The eye is a lamp and darkness on the inside is the light. How is he talking about this? Uh, Illustration. Take a minute. And uh, how many of you in the last, let's say, okay, last four years, you've gone on a vacation somewhere? Okay, you've gone out of town somewhere, gone on a trip. Okay, that's, that's most of us. For a moment, close your eyes, everybody. Those, if your eyes are not already closed, see you. Uh, okay, close your eyes for a minute and imagine that place where you went on vacation, okay? Maybe it's the chair where you sat as the waves were rolling in. Just imagine. Maybe it's the mountain that you hiked. Think about it. Maybe it's the exit where you sat waiting for AAA. All right, however that trip went. Okay, all right, open your eyes again. Okay, now it's important. Open your eyes. Okay, I got you back. You were there. Okay, you could do that. You could mentally go back to that place. How on earth did you do that? Like, you weren't there. You weren't really there, but you kind of were there. What entered your body through your eyes at some point now lives in the folds of your brain. And you can go back there in a sense. That's why it's so important to measure and consider what enters through your eyes. Because it's there. Like some of you would have preferred to stay there to come back, than to come back to the sermon. I understand. But it's that real to you as is most everything that you've put your eyes to. What your mind constructs is what your eye has already perceived. And it's very difficult to deconstruct that. I remember Len Sweet talking 20 years ago. And he said, you know, our parents were so concerned about uh, bad words. Remember? They had a list of bad words. And if you said those bad words, you'd get your mouth washed out with soap. Because bad words were the worst thing that could ever happen. I'm not advocating for bad words. I'm just saying this is what... He said, we're in a day and age now where... Bad words is one thing, but we're struggling a whole different battle against bad images. Because those images flash before you in a second, and they're in the folds of your brain, and you can't get them out. It is why we were taught to sing, be careful little eyes, what you see. So if the eye is the lamp of the body, what is he getting into? He's using the word lamp like we might consider a headlamp. Calling your eye a lamp is a way of saying that your eye illuminates the world around you. And if your eye is healthy, you see the path and the plan of the Lord and you follow it well. A good eye sees what is good and internalizes it. Some people are trying to live life with one good eye and one bad eye. And it depends on what they're looking at is how they interpret. Read the scripture with this eye, surf the internet with this eye. Look at the people they love with this eye, Look at that neighbor with the other eye. Have public discussions with one good eye. Have private discussions with the other. 
And in doing so, they think of an eye only as a mechanism of intake, but the ancients saw the eye not only as intake, but it actually projected things good and bad, and you begin to see things the way that you've seen things. And if your eye is good and healthy, and you're looking at the things you're supposed to look, suddenly you see goodness everywhere. But if you're taking in darkness, you actually do the reverse. Remember your uncanny ability to reconstruct that vacation? How you see things constructs your inner world that you live in. And that inner world can be unnecessarily dark if you put your eye to the wrong things. One writer likens this to how we look at God. If we look at God in a good light, we see him as generous and kind and loving. And it's not all that hard for us to be generous, kind, and loving. We tend to reflect how we think God is. But if we look at him in a bad light and we perceive him to be hateful or harsh or difficult, we tend to treat people in the way that we think he treats us. Which eye do you see God with today? Do you see him in a good light? And do you have the confidence of a son or a daughter who knows the pleasure of their father? If you see him and let him reveal himself to you in a good light and you have an accurate picture of who he is, you feel completely different about yourself and other people. I have an ongoing joke with Piper in the car. We do this a lot. When she is a little bit saucy or teases me, which I deserve. She's never out of line. But when she teases me, I have a a response to her. I say things like, Piper... If you get out of the car right here, how are you going to get home? Because if you keep acting that way, you're going to get out of the car. And she looks at me and smiles and says, okay. She totally calls my bluff. Why? Because she has seen me in a good eye. She knows I'm not going to put her out of the car there. She interprets this all. She understands what I'm saying. And it's, it's, imagine if she actually had the fear and saw me through dark glasses, the panic in her little heart, that she would think, I'm actually going to put her out of the car for something. She knows better. Even in my teasing, she sees and knows the truth. By filling your being with light and seeing God as who he is and understanding the scripture and encountering him in worship, you press back against the worries of tomorrow because you begin to see God for who he is and you actually see the future as God's. If you see him as overbearing and dark and vindictive to lay today, you set yourself up for worrying tomorrow that he's going to be like that. Knowing God and knowing who he is should not add to your stress. It should alleviate it if you're looking at him in the right way. Divided portfolio of time, a divided vision of God, finally, divided loyalties. It's amazing how much worry about tomorrow has to do with the idea of being divided today. Sometimes this division leads to divided loyalties, and those loyalties are usually split between faith in the one who can save us and faith that we can generate something to save ourselves. And this is how he talks about it in verse 34. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. One of the reasons that there's so much angst around the idea of God and money is because they are the two 
biggest competitors for the ecosystem of your heart. For your inner man, there are a lot of things that pull on that, but what it often boils down to is the pull of the Lord and the pull of money or the pull of what we get with money, which is stuff. This is even true of people who don't necessarily believe in God. They've got an inner struggle of, I want to do something significant with my life. I want to achieve some sort of transcendence, but I really want to cash in too. I want both. And we're all yearning for that higher purpose because we want to be, we all want to be about something more than money. Who wants to be reduced to the contents of their bank account, even if it's significant? When somebody says, what is that person about? Who really wants to be identified by a number? God and money don't compare, but within our heart, they do compete. And hear me, what I'm about to say has no bearing on how much money you actually have. Because I have found that the struggle between God and money is not only lost by those who have a lot of money. It is sometimes lost by those that have very little. There's this crazy idea that the drive for money is only active among those who operate in the upper echelons of finances. It's, it's completely not true. There is a division here, and serving God is our best attempt at selflessness. Serving God is our best attempt at putting ourselves aside. We don't do it well, but when we value it and we do it, He meets us there, and we become second, and He becomes everything, and we are fulfilled. Serving money or stuff is another way of serving ourselves. So that is the the pull, do we serve someone else or do we serve ourselves? And we can't serve them both because serving others or serving ourselves is intrinsically on two different trajectories. And to try and serve them both causes a great deal of pain. In fact, people get hurt. 25 years ago, we had this young kid that would come and play bass in our church. And uh, now he's a, a the online pastor for one of the fastest growing uh, churches in the U.S. But in the gap in between there along the line, probably about 15 years ago, Andy decided to go on an adventure and he decided to ride his motorcycle from the Arctic Circle in Alaska to the southern tip of South America. It took the year to do it, almost made it, made it to a, within a, about 150 miles of the southern tip of Patagonia. But on the journey, he's in Costa Rica and he has to cross a river, and apparently there's no bridge. He can't figure out what he's going to do. The locals tell him, well, you can hire a boat. And Okay, so he gets a boat. When, the, when he meets the boat that he's supposed to put his motorcycle on, now keep in mind it's a big BMW on, off-road. It's, it's a big bike. This thing is like a glorified canoe. Like, it's just not that big. And so he's a little nervous, and they assured him they had done this before. So he gets to the dock, and how they get it onto the boat is about a six-inch wide plank that he's got to roll his motorcycle across into a canoe that he's not totally convinced is going to haul it. And he said, I was nervous, but he goes, I had driven over mountains. I have, at this point, I have ran from bandits. You know, I've tried everything. I can do this. And he said, he said as I rolled my motorcycle out on that plank, the current of the river starts moving the canoe. And suddenly, the canoe is going somewhere that the dock is not. He said, I had to make a very quick decision. 
because I couldn't stay where I was. He ends up getting the bike into the canoe and, and completing the trip, but it's, there's that sense of, okay, these two things are going different directions. I can't stand where I am forever. Some of you are trying to serve two different things that are going two very different directions. You're trying to serve God. You mean that with your whole heart. You really do. But you're also very attracted by stuff. Nice stuff. And you can afford that nice stuff. And you buy that nice stuff in part because you think it'll satisfy you. There's nothing wrong with having nice stuff. But when you buy it to fill a hole that is within you, you are now standing on a plank and things are going two different directions. It's just different. It doesn't work. And because we're divided in our investments and vision and in loyalty, we have Jesus saying, no, 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 don't do this. You're not supposed to be anxious for tomorrow. You're not supposed to worry about these things. And even though we know that divided portfolio and divided vision and divided loyalty causes us problems tomorrow, tomorrow is coming, and it's coming so fast. How do we regard tomorrow without totally destroying ourselves with worry? A divine perspective of tomorrow asks a couple of questions that I want to ask you here as we wrap up. One of them is this. How do you, right now, not, I'm saying there's a right answer to this. There probably is, but I'm not giving it to you. How do you define the good life? Like when you say, I want a good life, what are you asking for? The idea of a good life has been up for debate from the beginning of time. Socrates said that the good life was one of contemplation and consideration. He said that an unexamined life isn't even worth living. So for him, the good life would be one that we lived and examined constantly to see if it was what we really wanted. But he didn't tell us what we should want, only that we should want. Thank you, Socrates. We realize we're all longing for something, but what is that life? Modern interpretation of the good life is largely possessions, a nicer house, a nicer car. I found a yacht online called The Good Life that you probably can't afford. It's 75 feet long, but you can rent it for like four hours for about $4,400, also known as The Broke Life, the Give Dave Ramsey a Heart Attack Life. You know, that's, that's a lot of money to rent a boat. But the idea is you can have The Good Life for a little while. Jesus challenged us, what do you really want? What are you thinking of when you say, I want a good life for my family and for my kids? And in Matthew 6, 25, he said, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothes? Is not life more than a yacht? Is at the core of your life, do you think anybody in hospice right now wishes they'd have bought the yacht? Is life not more than food, the body more than clothing? Isn't there an element of life that goes beyond physicality? There's got to be. Of course there is. Why would we settle for the physical trappings when there is a need within us that none of those things actually fill? So you've got to decide, what is the good life that I want? And then you've got to pursue it. Let me fill in some blanks for you. The good life, no, no, not the good life, a great life is knowing God and pursuing Him with everything within you. It is the most fulfilling thing you can possibly do. And some of you are doubting me now because you fulfilled Him or you have pursued Him kind of half-heartedly and it wasn't as fulfilling as you thought. That's because you're, you're doing it half-heartedly. 
It's not a direct correlation. You don't get half fulfilled him, pursuing him half-heartedly. You still feel pretty empty. But to pursue him with your whole heart is. God gives the good life, but he only does it to those that pursue him with a whole heart. And if you give him a half-baked attempt, it's like leaving your house for work and telling your wife, I love you till noon. That will not be popular. Nobody wants a half-hearted attempt at love. He wants everything. Some of you are like, this is getting exceedingly uncomfortable. It can be. Because he is not content with our half-hearted response to him. So if you've chosen badly, the second question that Jesus asks is, how's that going for you? How's that feel? He goes on in verse 26 and 27. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? This is kind of crazy, but even those of us who struggle with worry will admit it doesn't help. Like, who goes on home after a long day of worry and tells their spouse, I got a lot done today. I think if I worry a little extra this weekend, we should be good for the month. It's not rewarding. It's actually counterproductive. It's not helpful. It's a time sucker. And you find yourself after an hour of worrying, an hour closer to tomorrow, and an hour less prepared. Which of you, by worrying, can add a single day to your life? And he continues to press this, how's this working for you thing? In verse 28, he says, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. They grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed like one of these. He said in Solomon, there was a man in the Bible that had everything he needed. And these things, these worry about nothing, these plants are provided for better than Solomon was. If you're stuck in the worry loop, where you worry if you'll have enough and if you'll ever get it done and if things will ever, ever get better and then you don't have enough and you never get it done, things don't get better. Is that actually helpful or what does that do other than just take time that you could actually be preparing? Do you find any interest in the fact that the flowers of the field have everything they need and he knows that they're going to burn up at the end of the day? He's not oversimplifying. He's magnifying a truth here. Verse 31, do not be anxious, saying, what do we eat, or what should we drink, or what should we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Our worry, which we try and portray as being responsible, is actually an insult to our Father. If Piper really thought, when I teased her, that she had to get out of the car, that would say something terrible about me. And the worry that we put on tomorrow concerned about whether or not he is going to be our, meet our needs is actually seeing him through a bad eye. And those things are beginning to develop in the folds of your brain, and that's how you see him. Our worry that we try and say is being responsible is insult to our Father. Jesus is not preaching asceticism here or suffering. He knows you need things. He knows it. But he's saying what you consume yourself with matters. And being divided between worrying about stuff and money and what might happen and 
concerning yourself with what he is wanting to make in your life will destroy you. He closes with Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things, all the stuff that you're worried about, the tires that you're, you're researching right now because you've got to buy tires tomorrow, all of those things that you worry about, he makes a way for those things. These are two things to occupy your thoughts. He says, the kingdom of God and righteousness. The kingdom of God and his rule, the fact that he has authority over all things and he makes a way for those that know him and serve him, his kingdom. I was on a seminar this weekend where, or this week where somebody said, you know, it goes without saying, but we do have to say it, Jesus is Lord. And I thought that's so true. It's like we, we, we think about it, but actually Jesus is Lord over all of our life. Do we structure our life and our belief as if he is Lord over your family, as if he is Lord over your work decisions, as if he is Lord over your low interest but still too high balance credit card? Do we structure our life like he is Lord over those things? You want to change your spending habits just a little bit? Go home, get a Sharpie, and write on your debit card, Jesus is Lord. Every time you pull that bad boy out, somebody will go, I'll use Apple Pay. No, do whatever you need to do to put that in front of your spending. Jesus is Lord. Oh, well, in that case. So he talks about the fact that he is Lord, but he also talks about his righteousness, which makes up the gap when we fail. We acknowledge his lordship because his righteousness is there when we fail. We're not good enough. We're not talented enough. We're too worrisome at times to be of any good. And at the end of the day, we say, Lord Jesus, we need you. And he said, okay, I can meet you there with my righteousness, which is going to make up for all of your failings along the day. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. I want to ask if Zion would just come back. Just Zion by the keyboard for a second. We don't need the whole band. But as he comes, I want to take just a minute and pray with those of you that might be honest enough to say, I'm struggling with anxiety about things I just can't control. Like they're just out there. And I've worried about them for a while. And you know what? They're still out of control. It is not God's will that you struggle through the day worrying about tomorrow. It's just not his plan. And you might be able to look back and say, well, I have been kind of divided. I haven't been entirely wholehearted. There are things that I've times where I've served him a little bit. I've served money a little bit at the same time. Or, or I've invested time poorly. I've got to the end of the day. and Oh, I didn't do my part. And I think that God only does my, his part when I do my part. And I've got struggle there. But I've got anxiety. The word of the Lord to you is do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will have enough worry for itself. Stand with me if you would. Now, we do have to get out, but we've, we've got a minute here, okay? This morning, if you are tired enough about worrying about tomorrow, and you guys want to be free from this, I just want to put this aside. I want to appeal to his righteousness. I want to reboot. I want to start over. He'll meet you there. 
if this thought of anxiety is one that you have struggled with, we want to pray for you right where you are. Just lift your hand right now. Trouble about, what about tomorrow? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Okay. Anybody else? This is very real. This is very common. At some point, it applies to everybody. It really does. Okay. With hands up. Don't put them down yet. Don't put them down. Others look around for a second. If you see somebody near you that you can just reach out and put a hand on their shoulder, we're going to pray a blessing over them. I'm going to pray they have the, the best night's sleep that they've ever had. Okay? Because anxiety is a sleep killer. If, there, if you see anybody who has an upraised hand, who has, they've got some folks over here who have nobody praying for them, that's illegal. Go find them. Okay? Everybody plays. Father, we ask right now for the peace of God that passes all understanding to flood our beings. We press back against our very natural and even understandable tendency to worry and to stress about tomorrow. And we say that we believe fully that tomorrow is in the realm of your kingdom. Jesus, you are Lord of tomorrow. You're Lord of today. So in those instances where maybe we have made decisions that have contributed to our need to worry, we repent of those and we ask you for the divine reboot and the start over and the peace that you have for those who follow you wholeheartedly. Father, we, we're sorry for following in a half-baked manner. And we ask that you would forgive us for that. And that you would meet us with your righteousness where we are, on our knees, freaked out, scared. And that you would speak peace over us. Lord, I pray that even those with hands raised tonight would enjoy the best night of sleep that they have gotten in weeks. That you would lift worry over off of them. Lord, tomorrow's got enough trouble for its own. So we take claim of being a part of your kingdom in this day and forward. And we rest in that, Jesus. We rest in that. I pray that the peace of God would go with you today, would follow you all the days of your life for irrational encouragement to come out of nowhere, that you would find a light heart, you would find a place of joy, you would see the Lord through an eye of light, and you would in turn see the world around you illuminated by the God of all glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. I bless you to go in peace sleep well. Amen.